Good morning, everyone. I hope you had a, a truly blessed Christmas. Um, I don't know when the last time was that I went to church on a Saturday. Uh, all of yesterday felt very, very strange. I kept thinking it was Sunday, uh, but I, I knew in the back of my mind I had to preach again today. You're all looking good, a little like me, a little bit heavier today. I hope you had a, a wonderful day. We have come to the last Sunday of the year. In many ways, it's been a, a roller coaster year, uh, difficult for a number of families, but we gather again at the end of the year with hope for what God will do in 2022. We do come as well to the last sermon in our series in 1 Thessalonians. This is, I believe, the 22nd message. Um, what a, a wonderful privilege it's been to have been pastored by Paul in this way. So for now, let's read together one last time in the book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are very grateful for this letter and we are very grateful for what you have done for your church, in your church, through your church, through the words of Paul. We thank you for his precious ministry and his faithfulness. And more than that, Lord, we thank you for the way that you used him. We thank you for the word that we have that is the revelation to us of who you are. We thank you that we can gather to sing of your great gospel and what you've done for us and for the truth, the fact that Christ is ours forevermore. And so we rejoice together this morning as we come one last time to this letter and ask that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We recall that Paul wrote this as an encouragement to a church that was very dear to his heart. It was a church that was facing intense opposition in their city, and it was a church that Paul desperately wanted to return to so that he could strengthen them, but for whatever reason was unable to do so in the moment. And along with encouragement, Paul wants them to be instructed. And so the second half of his letter, he gives them this teaching, these instructions, so that they will be able to be faithful as the children of God in a hostile city. And we spent four weeks alone in chapter 5, verses 12 to 22, where Paul gives a series of instructions in rapid succession. Now he closes this letter with a prayer and with a few final words, a prayer in verse 23 and 24, and some words in 25 to 28. Now, these last words are not at all unimportant. They highlight, uh, in Paul's thinking, the, the value and the necessity of the church community. In verse 25, Paul says, Brothers, pray for us. 
Now we know prayer was central to Paul's life and his ministry. He doesn't only model prayer and pray earnestly for this church, but he even requests it from them, knowing how important it was even for his ministry. The apostles knew that without prayer, their mission and steps could falter. And if Paul needed prayer, we need to understand that we need community as well around us, and we need prayer as well. Verse 26, Paul says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Understanding the tensions that arise in the church, but how important fellowship would be for them if they are to be faithful under persecution, Paul encourages them. He urges them towards love and unity. Verse 27, this is interesting. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The intensity of his words shows for us what Paul felt about this letter, what he knew about this letter. If there are any anti-Paul naysayers in your congregation, make sure that they hear this as well. He places this letter next to the scriptures that they would be reading in their gathering together. We should not underestimate the importance of this, what we have, this public reading of Scripture and this time of the ministry of the Word among us. We need this and we center our community on this. And finally in verse 28, Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You will not find a letter written by Paul that is not sandwiched in the beginning and the end with grace, a wish for grace. He opens and he closes every letter with it because Paul knows that grace is central to the Christian life. And so it's for this reason that while these final words in verses 25 to 28 are important, what I want to do this morning as we close out this letter is just focus on the prayer. I want to focus on verses 23 to 24. Paul's prayer is the assurance of the grace of which he speaks in his last word. We would seriously fail to understand Paul if we closed out this imperative section, the section where he's given command after command and his final instructions. We would fail to understand him if we had it in our minds that the power to obey any of those commands lies in us alone. If that is the case, if that's what's in your mind, his final prayer must disavow you of that notion because his prayer points us to the truth that our hope lies in God alone. In his fame, I often talk about Augustine and his famous work, Confessions. I think I did it yesterday as well. He was an African monk and he, was, he wrote Confessions as a really as that, as confessions of how his life was before he came to Christ in his battle against sexual immorality and then Christ leading him into salvation and then further to that, it is his pleas to God to be more to him than the pleasures of the world. And he writes this, I have no hope at all but in your great mercy. Grant what you command and command what you will. And Augustine was saying two things in that statement. He was saying that God has the right to command what He wills. He has a will for mankind. He has authority to have that will. And His command is not just a suggestion. His law is not just a suggestion. But what Augustine is also saying is this. I have no power. I have no strength. 
I don't have the, the ability in myself to obey. You must grant what you command of me. You must sovereignly work to empower and carry me in obedience. Well, there was another monk, a British monk, who read that, what Augustine had said, and he almost had a stroke. Pelagius said, you, you can't say that. You can't ask God to do the work in you and through you and for you. If you say that, you're going to ruin morality. You're going to ruin responsibility in any sense of Christian duty in the Christian life. And this became one of the biggest con controversies of that century until a council of the church had to decide the issue. And at that council, the teachings of Pelagius were condemned. That man is somehow free in his nature, in his own volition and power to obey and follow and choose Christ. Because what Augustine said was, Completely the biblical perspective. It's the perspective that Paul's prayer makes clear. Any confidence we have for the Christian life of holiness rests not in us, but in God. So let's read this prayer again together. Verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. There are three things from this passage, this prayer, that I want to highlight about this God who sanctifies us. And before we get there, though, I don't want to skip over the audacity of what Paul is praying for. It is a big prayer, and we will marvel all the more uh, in what God does for us if we understand what is this incredible goal of the Christian life. Paul in this prayer is setting a bar for what holiness means. So number one today, let's look at the magnitude of his request, the magnitude of the request. Martin Luther once said this, that we in Christ equals justification, and Christ in us equals sanctification. Those are the two experiences we have in this life of salvation, that we are saved in no means or by no way, or not in any way by what we do, not by becoming like Christ. Justification means that we are saved only by the sinless perfection and the perfect sacrifice sacrifice of Christ for us. But when we stand in Christ, when we stand free from condemnation in Him, our heart after that fact is to abide in Him and that He would abide in us so that we would become more like Him. And this must be true of every Christian. Every Christian has a heart for holiness, a desire to be like Christ. Sanctification, therefore, is this process of becoming more and more like Him. It's the work that God does in our lives. And sanctification leaves no stone unturned. That's what Paul is saying here. His prayer is audacious. May God sanctify you completely. That completely, it's a, a rare word. Paul has joined two words together. The word for whole or holy and to the end or to the goal. The NIV actually is a, a good rendering here. May he sanctify you through and through every part of you, every avenue of who you are, 
the whole of you to the end. The next line makes this even clearer. clearer, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Now just as an aside, you may, be, you may hear that or read that and, and wonder here. You, you may, it may bring to mind that ancient debate. Is the human being made up of two parts or three? Have you ever heard that debate? The tripartite versus the bipartite view? Uh, I don't believe that we should read into Paul's words a tripartite view here, even though he mentions spirit, soul, and body. In 1 Corinthians 7.34, Paul summarizes complete holiness with the bipartite description. He says we are body and soul. In Matthew 10.28, Jesus speaks of human beings as being body and soul, while on another occasion he says you are to love the Lord your God with well, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Paul here is simply saying, I believe something similar to what Jesus was saying there, that sanctification ought to extend to all of who you are, to the whole person, the entirety of your being, your deeds, your thoughts. Sanctification extends to your emotions and your spirit. Holiness is not limited to a certain part or certain aspect of who we are. The, the Puritans used to speak of a universal holiness, a universal holiness. And what they meant by that is that there is not in the Christian life a separation of the sacred and the secular. It was a problem in their day, and it's actually still a problem now today, isn't it? That many people think, I can be one way when I come to church, I can live a certain way when I come to church, but out there in the world, I've got to live a different way. I can't be the same person at church and in the workplace. I'm never going to get ahead. I'm never going to get a promotion. I can't operate business in that way. I can't be the same person. And so they'll act a certain way at church, or they'll be a certain way at church, but when they're out there in the world with their friends or at the office, sometimes no different to the way that the world lives. God's requirement is different. It is universal Holiness. In other words, there are no lines drawn in the sand. I belong to Jesus whether I'm at church or at work or at school or with my friends or family. I belong to Him when I'm driving on the road. I belong to Him when I'm home alone and nobody can see what I'm doing. Sanctification is every part of me becoming more and more under the control of the Holy Spirit because Christ Jesus is my Lord before the face of God. All of me devoted to Christ, devoted to holiness. And the end, the goal, how big is this prayer? That you'd be kept body, soul, and spirit. What does he say? Blameless. Blameless before Christ when he comes. Now we, we'll come back to that. Because you might be thinking, I don't even know how to understand what Paul is saying here. But for now... The point I'm trying to make is that we must not downplay the pervasive nature of sanctification. We must not downplay the calling that we've received. In Paul's words, there is a standard that is inherent, that Scripture affirms through and through, the target of our holiness. We see it in the Old Testament and we see it in the New. What does God say? He says, be perfect like I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. That is God's standard. His standard is His own character. It is Himself. He is the standard by which He will judge. 
And I say this because we need to be careful not to make in our everyday life what I believe is a common mistake where we lose in our salvation and our walk with Christ, we lose the sense of fear and trembling. Philippians 2 verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we hear that with our modern ear and we scratch our heads Say, what does Paul mean? How do we explain what he's saying here? Do you know what fear means? Fear means fear. Trembling is a special Greek word that means trembling. If there's never any trembling in your Christian walk, then you don't understand who God is. You don't understand his Holiness, if there's never a sense of the weight of your sin, if there's never remorse or a sense of guilt at what has happened in your life and the things that you do, you need a clearer picture of His glory and His holiness and a better understanding of who you are. See, that's Pelagius' first mistake. To, to even begin to say that sanctification is possible in our own power or that through our own volition, we are free in our nature, fails dramatically to grasp the human condition and the problem of sin. It's why someone as holy as the prophet Isaiah could see the glory of God and cry a woe upon himself. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. Samuel Davies was a, a preacher in America around 1750, 1760, of whom Martin Lloyd-Jones said um, he was the greatest preacher ever to preach in America. But more than his preaching, what struck the people around him was his dedication to holiness, his desire to be like Jesus and the way he often was like Jesus. And yet at the end of his life, he wrote a letter to his mother. He died, I think, just before he turned 40, and she outlived him. And he says to her on his deathbed, I feel so guilty. I feel so guilty because my progress in holiness has been virtually none. It's been virtually none. And I've heard similar words from dear saints in the faith whose whole lives have told the, the story of a long time and a long-term obedience and devotion to Christ who have even said, I don't know how I can even call myself a Christian. And I'm not saying this because I believe that the goal is that we would experience lack of assurance. I believe it's a joy to have assurance of our faith in Christ. But I will say this. It is not always a bad thing when you look at your life and what speaks glaringly to you is the remaining corruption that is there. I didn't share Samuel Davis' story so that you would feel sorry for him. He is a man who died humble and holy. Paul makes this provocative statement about what is expected of us. May you be sanctified completely and kept blameless. And we must, when he says this, feel the seriousness of the calling. But we cannot stop there. Paul's statement, this provocative statement, is made not to draw attention to us. This prayer must draw attention primarily to God. And so we need to see with absolute clarity what, what Paul is saying, what Augustine saw. 
So if you make yourself the primary subject in your discussion of sanctification, then you've missed the point. Paul is praying to God and he grounds his prayer in who God is and that forms the assurance, not our own power or our own strength. The Bible is not designed just to tell us what is morally required of us. It's designed to help us know who he is, who he is for us and what he has promised to do in us. So let's spend our remaining time now just focusing on that, pouring our hearts into that. Number two, let's look at the God who sanctifies us. We know that Paul believes that the initiative for any good in the church, any good in the Christian's life must come from God because he prays for the same thing twice in the letter. Do you remember the first time? In chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, Paul says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Isn't that the same thing he's praying here? May your whole body, spirit, and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are three things I want to highlight in this prayer that are reasons for us to rejoice today as we look forward to the future. Number one, the God of peace is the one who sanctifies. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. This is what first strikes you when you read this prayer, this phrase, God of peace. What does it have to do with the context of what Paul is saying? Why does Paul use it here? What's the connection between God being a God of peace and the fact that it is God who sanctifies us? The phrase is not uncommon for Paul. I did a little bit of a word study, but he only seems to use this phrase at the end of some of his letters and in the context of God being the God who whose power fuels our obedience. To the Philippians, he said in Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. To the Romans, in Romans 16.19-20, he said, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I love that passage. Paul's saying your, your hope for obedience, your struggle against evil, your hope for that struggle is the God of peace. He is the one who will crush Satan under your feet. And, and that's just for any of you who might feel today, looking at the year that you've had, I don't know if there is hope for me in this next year. I don't know about victory in the Christian life. He is the God of peace who sanctifies. He's saying the same thing to all these churches, the Romans, the Philippians, the Thessalonians, all of these strong Roman cities. They, these citizens, they lived under a, a foe peace, didn't they? The Pax Romana. That was the peace of their day, the peace that was had at the edge of the sword. You step out of line and Rome will step in. This is the peace we have. God's peace is different. Yes, it does involve power. He says that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. He's the God who crushes our enemies. But for his children, his peace is so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. What Paul has in mind when he speaks of peace is shalom, which is wholeness. 
and fullness. The absence of chaos, it's goodness, it's in Gedi in the middle of a desert. It does involve, yes, just the, the removal of hostilities. There is definitely that, that while we were his enemies, he died for us. We have been forgiven and reconciled through the blood of Christ. There is that aspect of peace, but that peace pervades our lives. Robert Yarbrough says this, in light of divine wrath and human sin, bare forgiveness would have been an infinite treasure. But peace denotes full fellowship and well-being. When you understand what Paul means there when he says peace, then the connection makes absolute sense. When we understand peace in its full sense, the blessing that God bestows to those who are near to Him, who walk with Him. To walk in sanctification is to walk in God's peace. So many people think of holiness in, in a wrong kind of way. Holiness is not just, I, I avoid all of these things and so now I'm holy. It's experiencing the shalom of God as your heart yearns to be near to Him. And the promise of this passage is He will sanctify. He will transform with the power of His peace. He will ravish your heart with His goodness, He will delight you with the river of His blessing. God of peace does not delegate sanctification to another. Paul says He takes up the work Himself as He draws you ever closer to Him. Number two, the God who justifies is the one who keeps. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every part of you, blameless, holy for that day. So let's talk about this a little bit. What is Paul even asking for here? There is a, a false understanding of sanctification that says it's possible to reach this perfection, this blamelessness, this sinlessness in this life before we see him face to face. That at some point it's possible that you would reach sinless perfection holy in all you do. It fails to understand what perfection means, doesn't it? It fails to understand what sinlessness is. Sin is far more pervasive than we could ever comprehend. It extends to our, the, the deepest recesses of our hearts and our minds. It sullies our thoughts and our emotions, not just our deeds. In this process of sanctification, the grace of God is that He reveals, slowly but surely, He reveals one thing after another. He brings sin to light so that we are able to put it to death. But it is also the grace of God that He does not reveal everything at once. Yes, sanctification can be slow and painful, but that, even that is the grace of God. If God today showed you everything that is sinful about who you are, I don't think you'd want to get out of bed the next day. Sin is also not just about what we do that is bad in our, our thoughts and in our deeds. Sin is also about what we fail to do, isn't it? Every day there's that failing. Keep me blameless until then. I don't think that I have lived, and I'm being sincere and honest, I don't think that I've lived a blameless day in my life. I love Him, but I have not for one day loved Him as He ought to be loved. I have not loved him with all my heart and my soul, all my mind and my strength. And so this prayer is absolutely unattainable if my being sinless is all that is meant or is what is meant. 
So what is Paul saying? How will I be kept blameless at his coming? Well, let's start at the end. If I am to stand blameless before Christ on that day, it is only in one way. There's only one way, and it, it will be because I'm dressed in not my righteousness, but in his. Unless I'm justified in Christ, in other words, unless Christ's death washes away my sin in every part, unless his sinless righteousness is imputed to me as a gift and I stand there dressed in his righteousness, unless that happens, there is no hope for me on that day. And it is good to rejoice in any strides that we make in holiness. It is good to celebrate the victories that we experience as God works in us. But our hope for that day is not that my three steps forward and two steps back will ultimately um, result in me never having any steps to take. Our joy and our hope on that day is that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 31 to 33, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's how we will stand blameless before him. But Paul's prayer, I believe, is a prayer of keeping, a prayer of perseverance, for their perseverance in the faith until the Lord comes, that they would not make shipwreck their lives by turning away from Jesus. And a spoiler from verse 24, if it is God who does the calling, if it is God who does the justifying, he'll do the keeping. It's the golden chain of our salvation. Romans 8 verse 30, a verse just prior to the passage I read. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is our glorious hope. At the end of our lives, at the end of a, a perseverance where we do tremble and fear and walk in sanctification, where we do strive the end of that perseverance that is given by his keeping, we will get to stand blameless in his presence because we are glorified in Christ. And that is not to our glory, but to his. Again, one of my favorite lines in any song, and when before the throne I stand in him complete, there's Paul's word, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And so our, our perseverance comes not by placing hope in our own strength. It comes by placing our hope in Him. I want to read um, the words of this poem I found. The poem is just called My Advocate. And I want to read this to, to those of you who you, you do want to be like Him. You do desire to be holy. Sometimes you really do wonder if there is hope for you in that battle and in that fight. The poem goes like this. I sinned, and straightway post-haste Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God and made a railing accusation there. He said, this soul, this thing of clay and sod has sinned. Tis true that he has named thy name, but I demand his death, for thou hast said... 
The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled? Is justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his gloom. What other thing can righteous ruler do? And thus he did accuse me day and night, and every word he spoke, O God, was true. Then quickly one rose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke, each jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled, the guilty sinner dies. But wait, suppose his guilt were all transferred to me, and that I paid his penalty. Behold my hands, my feet, my side. One day I was made sin for him and died that he might be presented faultless at thy throne. And Satan flew away. Full well he knew that he could not prevail against such love. For every word my dear Lord spoke was true. We are justified in him. We are sanctified by his power. And we will be glorified by that same power. Finally, number three, Paul says, The God who promises is faithful to do what he has said he will do. It really is as simple as that. Verse 24, He, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Sinclair Ferguson said, one of the most frequent one-word descriptions of the Christian is that he is called. And Paul knew intimately that call in his life, didn't he? Disrupted as he was on the road to Damascus, persecuting the church, he saw the Lord Jesus. He was disrupted from that hell-bound race as we sing. It was the experience of Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth, despised by his own people. Never in a million years would he have thought that he would expe or expected this call from the rabbi. Matthew, follow me. And so the same divine disruption works for all of us who hear that call. And Paul is confident that if you've heard this call, he will finish the work. He was confident for their Philippian neighbors. Philippians 1 verse 6 and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul's confidence ultimately is not because of them, but it is because of the character of God. He who calls is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Is there anything about God that God's word speaks more of than his faithfulness? He is faithful. And what that means is what he has promised to do, what he says he will do, he will do. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? God's promise is stronger than our past. It's stronger than our present weakness. The sovereign caller is also the sovereign worker in our salvation. And it is right that we persevere, that we give all our strength 
and know the fear of trembling, of working out our salvation, but we rest in the promise, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He is holy, and so we set that holiness as the goal of our lives, of our heart. We stoke the fire of zeal. Zeal is what proves the call, but He is holy and He is patient as well. He will lead us. He will lead us forward in this process. And he works all things, Paul says, for his good pleasure. And it is our joy today, it is our joy even as we look forward to a new year, that it is God's good pleasure at washing over us that is the eternity in which we stand. It washes over us like a song, as remember Andrew so excellently reminded us a few weeks back. Listen to this, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What a joy is our future. And this is the hope we need as we come to a new year. Has it been a tough year for anyone? I know it has for me. And in honesty, I look at a new year with a little bit of trepidation saying, I'm not sure that I could handle another year like the year that we have had. Maybe that is you as well. Maybe you feel what has come your way this year from the hand of God has been heavy. Now, I don't know if next year is going to be any easier. Brahm has maybe said to me about 20 times this year, hang in there. It could always get worse. That's his encouragement. But we know one thing, he is faithful and he will sanctify, he will keep his children until that day. Not just that he is able, he will surely do it. And so we say, let 2022 come. And more than that, we say in line with this beautiful letter, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, I'm just... Um, very aware of the fact that we have great reason to rejoice and be grateful in the truth that you hold all things in your hands, that nothing comes to our lives apart from, from your sovereignty. And that is good news for us, Lord, because you are good. You are faithful. You are trustworthy in everything that you do, everything that you will. Everything com that comes to pass, we we know, Lord, and we look forward to that promise that we will stand in Christ complete on that day, blameless before Him. Jesus, we don't want to lose, as Keith said, the awe of what you have done for us. May we never allow pride to stand in the way of our hearts understanding the gospel. May we never allow pride to stand in our way of coming to you again for grace and mercy, for help in our time of need. We thank you for that mercy. And we thank you that your forgiveness goes with us even as we leave from here. It will be there for us this whole week. We thank you for your grace. Amen.